so we're going to jump into <coughs> our, our class lecture notes now. And so we're going to focus on uh, what could generally be termed the poets and the prophets. I mentioned that to you earlier. Um, some people uh, might, might frown up upon that, as I'll explain it in a few minutes, just because it's too general of what we're talking about. There is a more specific breakdown, and I'm going to refer to it. And hopefully I won't confuse you by going back and forth between the two. But uh, one of the things that I want to accomplish uh, every time I teach is I like to go deep into detail. But we also need to get a big picture in a way to be able to remember it and understand it. And so poets and prophets is easy to remember. All right? um, it is broken down further. There is wisdom literature aspect, but it's slightly different than just poetry and poets. But we also need to be able to remember it for ourselves. So as I mentioned earlier, we are going to uh, focus on 22 of the 39 um, Old Testament books. And the other 17 were dealt with in OT um, Survey 1. We're going to consider the topics of uh, canon and context. Uh, these Are these fill in the blanks for you? All right. So <clears throat> we're going to look at, you should be on, on your notes um, page, it should be page one, obviously, but First one is canon for you. But we're going to be looking at wisdom, literature, and poetry in general, followed by an overview of each of the 22 books. So then we'll deal with Job through Malachi. So today, we won't get into Job today. All right? Today we're going to be looking at introductory issues. We're going to talk about poetry. We're going to talk about the canon. We're going to talk a bunch about the structure of the canon, the books that are in the canon, the, the storyline of the canon, etc. And some other things related to that. Um, and uh, I don't think there's any way we'll have time to get into actually uh, the book of Job today. At the second half of our time, probably, we will be talking about what wisdom literature is, uh, how it functions, and, and that aspect. So the canon of the Bible all right, refers to the accepted or recognized books that are included in the Bible. So that's uh, point number two with you, okay? the canon. Um, the word actually comes from the architects of Greece. It refers to an instrument that was used to measure distances in the construction of um, buildings. So it's an architectural term. All right? uh, it's just like a ruler or a yardstick. If you want to know the distance between those two windows, uh, you want something that's the same every single time you measure. Because if you're going to duplicate this building over there, and you want the, the distance between the two windows to be the same, you need something that is the same each time. right? Otherwise, you'll end up with messed up, skewed buildings. So that's where the word can comes from. Okay? So it was an actual instrument. It was unbendable and it was dependable for straightness. And from this came the idea of a body of truth or a rule of faith. So Paul uses the term in Galatians 6.16 when he says, uh, May peace come to all those who follow the standard or rule in the NIV and mercy to the Israel of God. So he's, he's talking about um, do you follow... Uh, the biblical standard rule patterns. Do you fit in line with that? And so one of the things we have to constantly ask ourselves, the more you learn, the more accountable you are, right? And so the more we learn about Scripture, do we fall in line with the pattern of faith found in Scripture? Or are we outside of that? And the truth of the matter is that um, all of us in some areas are outside of it. Otherwise, we'd be perfect, right? And so the goal is constantly, it doesn't stop when you like get your diploma. 
Um, the goal constantly is that we're learning, we're sitting under the word of God. The word of God is instructing us, but it's, it's changing our heart and how we think that we're constantly having our mind renewed so that we are more and more being made into the image of Christ. It's that same goal. <clears throat> Letter B. This came to be used by Christians to describe uh, those books that set the rule and the standard of faith. And the canon for Jesus, the apostles, and those of us who follow what is called the Protestant Bible is the same. Now, this, this is where it starts to get a little bit confusing. Although the Old Testament that you hold today contains 39 books, it's the same content that Judas and Saul would have had, just in a different way. They would have had access to other writings as well, but as far as the canon of Scripture goes, we would agree as to what was the inspired uh, Bible or what God had revealed to his people. So, I will talk more about this, probably repeatedly throughout our, our time together. Um, Jesus' Bible was your Old Testament. And so, there are many Christians who think the Old Testament has, has no part or doesn't matter in their life. And they could not be more wrong. That's the only Bible there was. Even when the Apostle Paul was, was writing, there, there was no New Testament. Right? So, the Bible of Jesus, if you take 2 Timothy 3, right? All scripture is given by what? Yeah, inspiration of God, right? It's it's God-breathed. Theopneustos, right? The Greek word. It's God-breathed. What scripture is Paul talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament, right? The New Testament didn't exist. Paul is saying that the Old Testament, he's writing as a New Testament guy, to New Testament Christians, to New Testament Christians, saying the Old Testament is inspired by God and is profitable for you for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Why? So the man of God may be thoroughly equipped to do every good work. What good works? Ephesians 2.10 says that before you were even here, God has created good works for you to do. Well, how can you do those good works? you got to know your creator. You need to know where he fits. And he's revealed that in Scripture. Scripture is the Old Testament. Not that we have more. We have a New Testament, right? That gives us glory and story of Jesus Christ coming fulfilled. Promises of the Old Testament. But the New Testament doesn't exist apart from the Old Testament. The New Testament sits on top of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the foundation for all of that. So, fall in love with the Old Testament because it will help you fall in love with God. The, uh, number three, the canonical arrangement of the Bible for the Hebrews would have been in the three categories, as you can see on the screen. The law, the prophets, which there's former and latter prophets, and the writings. Um, Jesus said in Luke 24, 4, he said, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, you might say, yeah, Kevin, but, but he, didn't, he didn't say what you just said. He said law, prophets, and psalms. You said law, prophets, and writings. But if you look at the screen, what's the first book in the writings? It's the psalms. So when Jesus is saying the psalms, what's he referring to? He's referring to that category of writings called the writings. So the Tanakh, as it is called, okay, the the vowels in the middle, which is connecting three letters to make an acronym or a word. So the Torah, the Nebuchadnezzar, and the Ketuvim. And that is the law, or the teachings, the prophets, and the writings. That's the Hebrew word, and that's what they mean. So, <coughs> Psalms is the first of those main writings, and that's why he refers to it. So in the Hebrew Bible, it is referred to as the Tanakh, letter B. This is probably your fill in the blank. 
the Tanakh, T-A-N-A-C-H, just like it is up on your screen, referring to those three aspects. <coughs> now, the Tanakh, which we're going to talk about in, in uh, a few minutes here in more detail, would have been the script of the Old Testament, or of all the people that you know about in the Bible either had no scriptures, or up to and including, they had the Tanakh, okay? In the New Testament times, that is. Jesus appears, letter D, to have referred to this canonical order of the Bible um, in use in the first century when he says this in Luke 11. He says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now, if you know where these guys are in scripture, in our English Bible, you might not realize what he's doing. So Abel, who's Abel? What's that? Cain's brother, right. We find that in what book? Genesis, right? So first book, Genesis, Cain, right? Kills Abel. Then the next guy he mentions is a guy, Zechariah. Now there's more than one Zechariah in the Bible, right? The one he's talking about, though, shows up in Chronicles. And guess what? He was killed just like Cain killed Abel. What is Jesus doing? Well, if you look here, the first murder occurred in Genesis. And their arrangement, where did the last one occur? In the last book of their Bible, in Chronicles. What is Jesus saying? He's saying from the first to the last. Like, it's like an A to Z thing. Now, in your English Bible, though, it doesn't work that way. Because is Chronicles the last book in the English Old Testament? No, it's not Malachi. So we're like, oh, don't make sense, Kevin. Malachi is the last book. Except that when they're writing, it's not. Okay? So this is why we got to understand something about their context and their culture, which that's OT backgrounds, right? But it fits in with this, all right? Without it, we don't understand what Jesus is saying. That's just one verse. So the verses are listed there for you in, in the rest of um, the paragraph under letter D for Genesis and, and Abel, etc. Um, there's an article on the website by James Hamilton that talks about the order of the Bible and how we should be studying it. And I pretty much agree with them and Paul House. Paul House uh, argues the same thing in his textbook here. He also wrote a book on Old Testament theology, which is uh, kind of a standard or, or classic work. And the idea that, that they espouse is simply this. If we're going to understand the Bible that Jesus read and that Paul read, then we should study it the way they've studied it, which means you have to reorder our Bibles. And to my knowledge, I don't think there's an English translation that actually orders it that way. Now, there is in, in other languages. Some other languages have it, but not normally, but there are a couple. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's any English one. There's English chronological Bibles. So what they do there is different. They take everything, all the different, like it doesn't matter what book it is. If they think this paragraph historically happened over here, they take it out and they put it over here. And those are pretty cool to read for understanding the storyline and how things fit into them. Um, but that's not how the canon came about. And that's not how it ended up. And so what you end up doing is, I don't want to say you change the message, but to some degree you do. We'll talk more about that maybe with um, when I talk about SKFT. <coughs> so I know half of you don't know what that means, but I'll get to it later. So on the website is uh, an article by James Hamilton, if you want to go ahead and, and read that. So as 
to the acceptance of the Hebrew canon as we know it, when Ezra returned to the 5th century um, with the Torah, it was accepted as such by, by the people. In Nehemiah 8.1, he says, All the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. So you have additional um, scriptures that kind of indicate that this is how they view it. And the one I mentioned about Jesus in Luke, which is also in Matthew, that's not the only place that um, the law, the prophets, and the writings uh, is, is referred to. Sometimes it's just the law and the prophets listed. Um, so what I, what I want uh, you to do is uh, flip the page for a minute. I think it's on page four for you. Does it say the Bible is organization up at the top of page four? Okay, so what I'd like to do, and this might be a review for some of you, and for some of you it might be uh, completely new, which, honestly, that's, that's the way pretty much everything will be uh, in, in the course, right? Everybody comes from a, a different uh, background, right? So let's just fill in this chart a little bit, and you can use this chart as um, a, a study tool. It's not up on the, the TV screen. I have other charts that will have the same information, but so the Bible, underneath where it says the Bible, um, there's a total number of books, and it's how many? How many books in the whole Bible? Yeah, 66 books in the whole Bible. So that's the number you want to put right there, 66. Okay? <clears throat> and then we divide it into Old and New Testaments in our English Bibles, right? And so in the Old Testament, um, there are 39 books. Now, if you are prone to forget that. Um, I learned this from somewhere. I don't remember where. But if you write the word Old Testament, okay, there's how many letters in Old? And there's how many letters in Testament? And there's how many books in the Old Testament? 39, right? Now, the, the next one is, is slightly trickier. Okay, so Old Testament, 39 books. New Testament... It's similar, except you can already tell. You're going to get what number? It's still got three letters, right? Okay, so here's where you have to just remember something, okay? So you can't just put 39 because it's not 39 and 39, all right? So but if you multiply them, what do you get? You get 27, all right? So if that'll help you, all right, I'm all about, you know, whatever will help you remember these things. So 27 in, in the New Testament, all right? Uh, and then we further break them down. Now, these are broken into several categories. You've got, you got five in each, all right? And the first is the Torah or the Pentateuch, all right? I prefer the word Torah, but Pentateuch is probably more commonly used. Pentateuch simply means five books, Pentateuch five, okay? So there's five under Torah. So put five in that little box there, all right? History has 12. The wisdom literature or poetry has five. The major prophets has five. And the minor prophets has 12. So you see that there's a little bit of um, symmetry in the sense. Five, twelve, five, five, twelve. All right? Um, the first two together, five and twelve, is 17. And the, the last two, the major and minor prophets, is also 17. So it's 17, five, and 17. Okay? Because the Torah is still, it's law, but it's also, it's history. Right? 
Spanish with that Church of British Columbia Peter Lambert. So you have 17 histories, five um, poetry and wisdom, and then 17 prophets. In the New Testament for the 27, you got how many Gospels? Four. Acts is just one. And then you got uh, Paul's letters. Okay, epistle just means letters. So Paul's letters was 13, and then general letters or epistles is 8, and Revelation is 1. All right, now that one doesn't look as, as symmetrical, right? Now, I'm, I'm going to spend a few minutes on this, and I'm going to show you several different like diagrams, like six or seven of them, okay? I don't want to confuse you by them. I want you to um, pretty much use whatever ones resonate best with you. Because the point is to understand the, the section of, of the Bible that we're talking about, okay? And for you to somehow be able to get a mental image of it so that when I'm referring to books of the Bible, you can place them. I want to be able to say Esther, and, and you can see it in your mind where it is in the Bible story, all right? So let me finish this sheet with you, and then, and then I'll, I'll show you a few other images. So under the Hebrew organization... Okay. Um, the sections total 24 books. Okay, let's check the rest. Go in. 24 books. And you, you can, um, well, it says three slash four. You can kind of scribble out that four. It'll just confuse you. I'm not going to bother with it. All right, so three sections totaling 24 books. All right. Um, the first one is the law or the Torah. There's five books. That's same Church of Deuteronomy. Okay, so that matches, okay, the English. So the chart that we just did above, that's English, okay? The one we're doing right now, that's the Hebrew, all right? So you got the law, which is in Deuteronomy, that's five books. Then you have the prophets or the Nevi'im, okay? And underneath that, you have a subdivision. There's the, both the former and the latter, okay? So the first and the last is the prophets. And then you have the writings or the Ketuvim, okay? which is further subdivided into what they call truth or, or poetry books, and then the scrolls or the feast books, which I'll talk about in just a second, and then three more history books, okay, that are all part of that. So all the prophets and writings. Now, the scrolls, when we say the scroll books, all right, that uh, middle bullet point under writings, if you look to the right, there's a box there, and it lays out for you what these five scrolls are. And in parentheses, it tells you um, what it was about or when they read them. So at different feasts, they would read this book or scroll of the Bible. So songs, for instance, at Passover, that's the Song of Solomon. Um, Ruth at Pentecost. Uh, Lamentations was the anniversary of the destruction of Jerusalem. Ecclesiastes was specifically in Greek. Um, in Tabernacles and Esther or um, Purim. Okay, so if you don't know what all those are, that's okay. Don't worry about it. All right. But the point is that at certain feast days, how did they celebrate these feasts? They read scripture. They read God's law. And I, and I think there is when when you study the feast of Israel. Okay. Um, this past fall, uh, I took our church through a mini five week um, mini series on the fall feast. When you, when you study the Feast of Israel, um, you'll come away with a greater appreciation for what was going on, what God was doing, and then you'll see the contrast 
with what I would just say is how lacking God is of the central focus of what I'm trying to celebrate in communion this Advent was. Um, there was very much uh, God-centric and Scripture-centric because the Scripture was the revelation of God. So can we see that with this? Now, the truth is that they forgot a lot of times also. There's time periods where they didn't do this stuff, and, and they forgot about God. And, of course, the consequences are, you know, that they were taken captive, they went into exile, etc. So, <clears throat> if you go to the next section under Christian organization, this is just a summary. We've already put it up in the, in the boxes ahead. But uh, there's five sections totaling how many books in the Old Testament? 39, right. The Pentateuch or Torah is how many? Five, the history is, right, poetry, major prophets, and minor prophets. Exactly. It's the same thing that's in your chart up there, okay? Um, the modern English names, the titles, like Genesis, why is it called Genesis, okay, are taken from um, the Septuagint, okay, that's S-E-P-T-U-A-G-I-N-T. Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures from around 250 B.C., 250 B.C., okay? So one of the things that we need to be aware of and understand is that cultures change and languages change. And when the people began speaking another language, they wanted the scriptures in that language. This is the whole reason we do Bible translation, right? And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in our class, actually, today. But we want people to have the Bible in their language. So if you can't understand the translation you're reading, my advice is get one from the Hebrew. Right? Isn't the whole point of reading the scripture to be able to understand it? So we want to have something that we can actually understand that's close enough or that's in our language that we can understand as much as possible what's being said. The New Testament um, quotes the Old Testament frequently, and oftentimes it comes from the Septuagint. Hebrew text, they're often quoting from the Greek. So, I will use abbreviations. Um, probably the first time I'll say what it is in parentheses, but after that I probably just use the abbreviation. So, obviously OT is Old Testament, NT is, is New Testament, LXX stands for Septuagint. And you're like, well, how do you get that out there? Roman numerals. Yeah, I know. But it's because the number 70 goes with the legend of 70 people, or some scholars have argued 72 actually. Uh, translated this into the Greek, and so that's why it's Septuagint, the, the symbol for that. So, any questions on, on that chart? All right? Pretty self-explanatory, right? So, But that's the different parts um, of the Bible. <clears throat> so, go back to um, page 3 with me, if you will, and letter B. Additionally, note the following. The prophets were accepted um, by this time or close to it as well. By the second century BC, um, there's familiarity. Now, Ecclesiasticus is, is another book, okay? It's not the same as Ecclesiastes. But the point that I'm making here is that outside of the Bible, okay, there, there's other literature and there's other people that indicated that they had already agreed and accepted these books of the Old Testament. And so, and I'll have a couple of quotes in a minute. The New Testament writers use the phrase the law and the prophets in Matthew 5, John 1, Acts 13, and Romans 3. What, what are they saying? They're saying that the whole of Scripture. So sometimes they, they use a shorthand, okay? Um, just like the abbreviations, NT is New Testament. 
So instead of saying the law, the prophets, and the writings, sometimes they would just say the law and the prophets. And then that's the whole thing. So the New Testament is saying that the Old Testament, Jesus, the Bible, Paul's Bible, etc., is the same as what we now call Old Testament. Is that understood? All right. Um, the writings, the third group, were accepted no later than the first century, but probably earlier. The Dead Sea Scrolls contain copies of all of them but Esther, and Ecclesiasticus makes reference to them as well. Okay, the Dead Sea Scrolls were um, writings that were found in caves out in the desert, and the Dead Sea Scrolls really gave us a lot of new understanding on the culture of the time, and they also showed, as the point is here, that it's not just our Bible that is evidence of the scriptures, it's other writings that verified it by saying that it was scripture. Does that make sense? We continue on with number four. Josephus was a Jew who ended up um, joining with the Romans and then ended up writing several histories. And he writes that from Artaxerxes until our time, everything has been recorded, but has not been deemed worthy of white credit with what preceded, because the exact succession of the prophets ceased. But what faith we have placed in our own writings is evident by our conduct. For though so long a time has now passed, no one has dared to add anything to them, or to take anything from them, or to alter anything in them. That is, only the books written from Moses to Malachi and the succession of Hebrew prophets are considered to be canonical. With that, the statement of the Talmud agrees when it says, Up to this point, the town of Alexander the Great, the prophets prophesied through the Holy Spirit. From this time onward, incline thy ear and listen to the sayings of the wise. Okay, now Josephus is writing in a um, late enough time period, I guess I can say, that you see here he's referring to uh, Moses to Malachi. So again, what the point is, though, is that you have outside writers saying what? That the Bible you hold in your hand is the Old Testament Bible. That really is the one that Jesus had. Cyril of Jerusalem, 35 to 86 A.D., okay, writes in his catechesis of the divinely inspired scriptures of both the Old and the New Testament, and he then lists all the books of the Hebrew Bible, okay, with slightly different numbering for all the same books, and the Christian New Testament except for Revelation. But why Revelation? Because look at the dates. We're talking about up to 86 A.D. when Revelation is probably written somewhere in the 90s, right, by the Apostle John. And so this is super cool and super important because this guy is saying that the same Old Testament was agreed back 2,000 years ago in the Exodus, and up until Revelation, which hasn't been written yet, everything in the New Testament was also already, by 86 AD, held to be scripture. So it's not some new modern convention that somebody made up. Number six, this can be replicated further by references to other early church fathers, and I list some of them. And for more um, on versions in Hebrew Canon, etc., you can see um, House, the same guy that wrote your book, he has, a, he has a, uh, another book which um, I don't think I can write it in, but it's charts of the Old Testament. And so he'll list charts and different manuscripts and, and whatnot for each book, okay? So <clears throat> this leads me to uh, several more charts that I want us um, to look at. All right, so the next one is, is going to look at this threefold division, okay? So to kind of explain 
um, or let's look at it from another perspective. Um, so their order was the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketavim, right? So all the prophets and the writings. And here's the books, and then as we already talked about, you break the prophets down into the former and the latter, and then you have the writings listed there. <coughs> uh, this is the same exact thing, it's just in excellent uh, color, because um, I didn't take some of them out. And now, this is the English order, okay? So if you compare this one to the other one, you will see that they're not quite the same. And I'm, I'm going to give you um, a, a different one for you to kind of look at for that. This one here, I think is probably one of the most helpful for you because it still has your, your three divisions, okay? Um, he's looking at the, the English here, right? So the law, the Psalms, or the writings of the prophets, okay? 17, because remember, we're, we're combining both the first five, the Torah, with the rest of the histories. Five poetry and, and 17 prophecies. Why is, is this probably um, helpful? Because it's, it's simplified. So history, poetry, and prophecy. And this course is going to focus on this right here, the poetry and the prophecy. So OT1 covers the 17 books of history. Okay? Then he further breaks this down for you with the Pentateuch or the Torah and the historical books. It's just like the chart at the top of the page that we filled in. Um, the poets, the major and minor prophets. But then this column here, I, I do not have on mine. He further breaks this down by explaining in the history of things where they fit in and how these prophets are either before, during, or after the exile. And if you don't know what the exile is, what I'm referring to is when, when um, God allows or sends in the enemies to tear down and to disrupt Israel and send them off into other countries. That's exile. And so there's prophets before that. Okay? They're basically saying, repent now, or you're getting kicked out. Of course, they don't listen. Then there's prophets during the exile who are like, now what? Like, is everything lost? And so actually there's hope given during that time to the prophets. And then there's prophets after the exile when they return to rebuild. And again, there is um, some repentance piece in there, and then there's also some hope in there of the future coming Messiah. And that God is going to uh, fulfill his plan. And so this chart helps you understand that. And so when we get into the prophets, after we study the, the poets, you have uh, pre- and post-exile prophets, and he has them listed on this chart. So um, you might want to just... This other chart that I want to um, show you also helps with putting them in their place in history. Can you tell I like charts? Um, <clears throat> this one here uh, helps you understand how they fit into uh, the historical place in history. So. Here what you have is the law listed down here, which is still part of history, okay? And then the historical books. And then they're showing you, and this is what, when you think of the Bible, you need to think of it as a story or a movie, okay? It, it's an active movie that's going on. It's still going on. It's not ending, okay? And you take the, the first 17 books that are, are history, and you need to play it like a movie. It's not names and numbers. It's an active 
scene unfolding. And the reason I say that is because in our culture, uh, movies are the stories of our culture. We don't sit around campfires and, and grandfather doesn't tell us you know, your story for previous generations, for most of us. If you want a good story, you, you pay your 10 bucks, you go sit in a comfy chair, and you watch somebody else's story being told to you, right? With music and visuals that helps it stick in your brain. When you read the Bible, you got to think of it as a movie. You got to get images that'll help it stick in your brain, and you got to get the flow down. And when you begin to see it as a story, things will change for you. And the same thing is applicable to just history in general. If you hate history, um, I hated history until I became a Christian, and then I realized that history is God's story, and whatever's unfolding anywhere in the world is actually part of God's story. And so my questions became, what role is God doing? Like, how does this fit in? And I don't have the answers to all those questions sometimes. But they're part of what God's doing in the world. So it's part of the grandest, most global story ever. And if you're sitting here, that means you're alive, and it means you're actually part of that story. And so you're part of the unfolding plan of what God's doing. And the question is, what part are you playing? So there's good characters and bad characters in God's story, but everybody that's alive, part of the world alive, or will be alive, is all in God's story. So it's worth seeing. So what these arrows show you <coughs> is that the books of poetry were written where? They were written here. Okay? During the time period of Samuel, for instance. Alright? We'll get into this more in, in detail when we study them, but a lot of Psalms and Proverbs is written by David. Uh, Job is kind of grayed out because uh, that probably was in the time period of Genesis, which you can see right here. Okay? And then the prophets, <coughs> they're divided into before, during, and after the exile. And if you look at the historical timeline right here, you can see that the exile is right here. Okay, So these are written during. These are after. So this is Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. That's during the time period of Ezra and Nehemiah. So you have historical writings telling you the story, Ezra and Nehemiah. And in there, you have these prophets that are speaking to the people. Uh, the prophets are God's covenant portraits. They're God's prophets. All right? The people are, are off from where they're supposed to be. God sends his prophets in to get them back on track. If they listen and repent, great. Blessings to them, right? If they don't listen and repent, well, trouble's coming their way. FYI for you, right? <coughs> so that's what this whole chart um, explains. You have a copy of that at the top of page five. And I think it's just about big enough that you can actually probably read and, and utilize um, as as part of your uh, notes as you're getting to this. <coughs> All right. As if we haven't had enough charts, um, this is basically the same, um, but some of you might prefer it better. So you again, um, everything is history, poetry, or prophecy. It's color-coded for you. Um, and then you can take your storyline, that's the red, okay, and you can plug and play, basically, all right? Wherever they show up is, is where they occur. So you can quickly, um, I like this one for, like, at a glance, because uh, it's, it's color-coded, and you can quickly see, so you, you find what book you want to um, talk about. Well, Proverbs, well, Proverbs is, is poetry, so where's, where's poetry? Poetry's green, so where's Proverbs? Boom, right here. So most of Proverbs, or Proverbs, when was it written? Um, during First Kings, all right? So same thing, prophets, pick a prophet. You're like, I want to talk about some prophet or whatever. Well, um, find him on the blue. Where is he? 
So say, well, why does that really matter, and how, how does that help me? Well, if you're not in OT background, eventually you'll probably take it. Um, it is very much important because you need to understand the historical context of what's going on. If these prophets don't happen in a vacuum, God sends these covenant enforcers because of what's going on. So there's some stuff going on that God wants fixed, and that's why he sent these guys in. And you can pretty much know by the number of prophets, and if you know anything about the Bible story, is that pretty much every single time, the people do what? They die. Exactly. Which is what Jesus quoted earlier, right? From Amos to Zechariah, what have you done to the prophets? You've killed them. Now, why did Jesus bring that up? Because he's claiming to be a prophet come from God. He's claiming to be the greatest prophet ever that came from God. And what's he saying to the people? You're going to kill me. Why? Because you kill all of God's prophets. Because that's what you do. Because you're rebellious and because you think you follow God, but you don't follow God. And so that makes no sense at all unless you understand the storyline, what the prophet's role and function is, and how all this is playing out. Otherwise, you just read that and you're like, all right, I don't know why Jesus said that, but whatever, moving on. You know? So <clears throat> this helps us under understand that and um, what's going on with it. There are a couple other aspects um, to this idea of, of how everything fits together. Um, if you're with me on, on page five, there's a few more notes that go with this slide here. Which again, this slide is saying the same as, as uh, the other slide. I didn't put an image of, of the other slide probably on your notes, but um, this threefold ordering Alright, it's similar to the format espoused by uh, Dr. Burt Downs. Okay, so I'm going to put this one back up just because I kind of like it a little bit better. Um, but it's the same threefold ordering, and you can quickly see, I'm talking about the history of the poetry and the prophets, okay, for the English Bible. <laughs> now, um, this layout, if you, might, you might be wondering, like, well, why are you spending so much time on this? I'm going to show you in a minute. Um, there's some scholars that that would argue, and I think there's legitimacy to it, that the way the canon is structured and organized is actually theological and it's theological error. Um, and there's people that argue that both for the Hebrew order and also for the English order. And there's some similar um, conclusions that, that come from that. And so um, under letter D on page 5, numbers 1, 2, and 3, are the way that Dr. Burnt Downs la labels it. He calls them the foundational, the historical, and the instructional. And they're already given to you, right? They're not filling a blank. So um, he lists this for both the Old Testament and the New Testament. He says they're both structured the same way, okay? Again, uh, this is one of the ways that he teaches this so that you can understand it so it makes sense. You can break it down further, all right? You can with almost everything, right? So the foundational sections, they set the principles and the patterns that are lived out in the historical. So let me break that down for you. He's saying Genesis and Deuteronomy sets up what God's intentions are. Okay? Then you move to the next section, and that's where they're lived out. So you'll see on number two, the historical. He says from Gospel to Exodus, the narrative of the lived out, I added or the last thereof, meaning it is lived out, um, principles and patterns. So how does God want you to live? Well, I tell you, from the law section, right? Okay, now let's see what you live it out. And then the instructional, which he lists Job uh, to Malachi, 
speaks into it without history, what the speakers of the time have to say about the actions of the time. Okay? Now, if, if you scrutinize this carefully, you will see that his divisions aren't exactly the same as the mothers. For instance, he's got uh, both the, the poets and the prophets are together, right, in the instructions. So there's not really this division between them, right? Um, but there's also some, some similarities. There's other scholars that have argued that the arrangement of the books is um, theologically derived. Now, Paul Hauck, in your textbook, okay, so these two textbooks right here, right? So in his textbook on page two, he basically says the same thing. He says the way that it is set up in the Hebrew Bible is, is not just accidental, it's theological, and he advocates to actually we teach it that way. I actually agree with him, but we're not teaching it that way. Okay? So, which is why you're going to be jumping around a little bit to find the, the section in the textbook that corresponds to what we're teaching. It doesn't go just straight through that it's arranged by the Hebrew writing, okay? Um, Dr. Jason Derushi has an excellent um, Old Testament survey book called What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About, a survey of Jesus' Bible. And you can probably, I can just tell from the title where I'm going to go with this, since he's looking at how Jesus viewed the Bible, what order do you think he followed? kind of argue that, you know, we're maybe, you know, jacking up the order, you know, and so let's look, if you want to know what Jesus thought and said, let's look at how we view the scriptures. If we view the scriptures, like the Hebrew way, you know, so let's look at that. He says, um, under Roman numeral four here on page five, that the Hebrew canon is organized by chronology, narrative portions, and size, commentary portions, whereas the English is organized by history and chronology following the Greek and Roman libraries. So, um, his his book is on the screen, um, What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About, a survey of Jesus' Bible. And he, he takes this further, and then he, he argues that you've got this narrative commentary section, but then he says <coughs> that there is this aspect, um, number one on your notes, that the covenant is established. Okay, so he says that God establishes what he wants going on, all right, on number one at the bottom of page five. He says that that happens both in the Old Testament in the law sections and in the New Testament in the Gospels. The Genesis is a kingdom prologue that sets the stage for Israel's mission, which is detailed in Exodus through Deuteronomy. You can also see this on the screen. Okay, so he's going to argue in his survey that both the Old and the New Testaments, okay, this is the narrative portion, and it is the law or God's God's covenant established, okay? Then in number two, he says, is the covenant enforced, okay? So that's this middle section right here, okay? This is the former prophets and the latter prophets, all right? So that goes back to the Hebrew canon order, right? So the, the prophets are, are former and latter, you got to remember, you got to switch your thinking. Because we're not talking about what we English calls the, the major and minor prophets. We're calling what the Hebrews calls the former and the latter prophets, right? You all with me? Okay? It, it can get confusing. I confuse myself sometimes, all right? So just keep this straight, all right? So he says um, this is the covenant enforced. It's the prophets. And then in the New Testament, it's the Acts and the Pauline letters. Letter A, 
This is um, narrative history. Are there any blanks I missed in number one? No, you got them, okay? Because I think I, already, I just underlined for you the narrative and the commentary part. Okay, because he argues that there's this, this flow, this theological synoptical flow between narrative and commentary aspect. Um, and then the prophetic commentary is the latter prophet. Okay, <laughs> and so you can see that down here. So you've got narrative, narrative, and then commentary on it. And then and the covenant enjoyed, our third section, which is the former and latter writings, you again have commentary and narrative. So he argues that there is this, this uh, structure, all right? Go to SKSU, which I'll teach in, in a few moments. <coughs> Number three on this aspect is the covenant enjoyed the writings. So this is a positive in contrast to the prophets. The prophets are kind of negative. They're basically like, get right or walk out. All right? And some of the prophecies are kind of like, watch out. Oops, too late. Punch in the face. Um, so it's kind of what's going on. It's like um, <coughs> someone's warning you at the same time that they're throwing a punch in your face. So by the time you hear the warning, it's what? Yeah, too late, right? And, and that's how some of them are because God has already warned them so many times. Now it's basically just like, okay, the stampede's coming. Like, I've told you, I've told you, I've told you. So, duh, oops, sorry, it's too late. No. <coughs> um, let it be. The former prophets begin with uh, Ruth, providing the framework of hope that is anticipated in the rest of the writings. Now, th this is where um, it can get a, a little confusing if you analyze it too much. And, it, and I'm not going to test you on all this. Okay? So, don't be too nervous about it. Um, but Ruth is usually stuck with, with some other people, especially when we look at our, our English Bible. But he's saying that, that this, uh, this aspect of, of Ruth um, leads up to, or is kind of a prologue to the, the rest of the writings here. Psalms and laments uh, clarify, so they're commentary, on how those hoping in God's kingdom were living. And then the latter prophets detail the narrative um, of God's preservation of a remnant in exile, the restoration to the land, and the promise of a complete kingdom rule. And this is a setup for the coming Messiah and the coming judgment. Okay? Now, you might be overwhelmed at this point. Um, one of the things with, uh, with studying Scripture is, is, just like anything else, we start out as a model because we don't know much of anything, right? And then, and then we build on that and we learn more and more. And the more you learn, uh, the more you begin to see the cohesiveness and the patterns in that. And when you begin to see that, that's how you end up putting together stuff like this. Where suddenly, um, you know, he's been teaching for long enough, and you know, he's got his PhD, which means he had lots of extras. Well, I'm, I'm not going to say he had lots of extras on him, but he had to spend lots of extras on him um, in detailed study, right? And so, and then after teaching um, courses for long enough, you come up with um, how you think God has revealed certain things to you. So, it's just like I have a couple things I'm going to share with you in here in a little bit that through my study are kind of some guiding thing, things or principles that I utilize. And, and I only got them through study scripture. So <coughs> the English organization, uh, letter B here, is also theologically, narratively structured. Um, on the next page, it, it might be on page 9 for you, is... Another structuring aspect. And this is from a book called The Torah Story and some additional adaptations that, that I made to it. 
So if you look at this chart, what you'll find is you have a book of the Bible on the left, and then you have how it opens and how it closes. Okay? Now, one of the, the cool things, at least it was to me when, when I first learned it, is that you think of the first five books and you just think there's five different books, but they're not. It's really one book. Alright? Um, in fact, if you look at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua, they all start with the word and in Hebrew, which tells you what? that or you read that and you go look um, and you know you have to know where to put the letter in in Hebrew but you know it's just called a, a, a vow or a wow however you want to say it but you know it's a whatever you want to say that looks like right that's what it is in front of a, a, a word right and so you're like oh really Exodus does and then you're like and you look at Leviticus and you're like oh that is two and then numbers numbers is two Deuteronomy is two so but it's just one long story and so you look at this and you look Genesis opens with beginnings right and it ends with Jacob's blessing of his sons, looking to the state of the family line, and then in Egypt. And how does Exodus start up? In Egypt. It just picks up right where they were. Then the closing of Exodus is God's presence filling the tabernacle that they just built. But how does Leviticus start up? God's calling to Moses from inside the tabernacle. Because Leviticus is all about worship. Leviticus is, God just said, build this tabernacle. Why? So I can meet with you? So I can be there in your presence? Okay? We'll talk about this you know, as we go through our, our survey, but, you know, in Genesis, God created the man and the woman so he could be with them. God's people in God's place in God's presence. And that's what Revelation is. God's people in God's place in God's presence. And so the whole story of the Bible is how that gets jacked. Like they're either not in God's place or they're not in God's presence or they're maybe they're not God's people, right? So one of these problems, and that's what's being solved in the storyline. Leviticus then ends with regulations for rightly worshiping God. Why? Well, if the presence shows up in town, don't we do some things a little differently? Don't we, like, get ready? If he's coming to your house for dinner, don't, don't we, like, you know, maybe clean up a little better and get ready for the president? Okay, well, we're not talking about the president. We're talking about God shows up. And so God's saying, I'm going to come into your midst, into your camp of tents where you're all living here in the wilderness. I'm going to come dwell there. I'm coming. And so that's what this is all about in, in Leviticus, all these rules and regulations. And Numbers starts out with the tribes worshiping and it ends with the Israelites on the plains of Moab. Well, Deuteronomy picks up with the Israelites on the plains of Moab and ends with Moses dying or his threshold of time coming up so he doesn't get to Canaan. Joshua picks up the mantle and he leads the charge into the promised land. They never got it. Judah picks up the mantle and judges to finish the conquest of the promised land. It ends with no king. You got Ruth in there. Judges are ruling the land. The book of Ruth occurs inside of Judges. Okay? So it's part of the Judges time period. Right? When the Judges rule. <clears throat> and it ends with a genealogy in the lineage of David. So theologically, in our English Bible, why is Ruth there between Judges and Samuel? It's a connecting book. Because what's Samuel going to do? Samuel is going to tell us the story of how God is going to call King David, the man after God's own heart, he is going to be this king for his people, right? And so Ruth is in there to set up the story and the genealogy of how do we get to David from that line? Samuel starts out with circumstances surrounding the birth of Samuel and ends with God punishing David. Kings is David's sickness and the family rebellion. 
and sang his hymns of Jerusalem, fallen into Babylon and Judah as exiles. Ezra is the return of the exiles to Jerusalem, Jesus purifying and restoring. Nehemiah is the rebuilding of Jerusalem, ends with mixed marriages and condemnation. And as, as uh, Esther is in between chapter 57 of Ezra. So, Chronicles, um, it's not on here, I think it didn't fit. <coughs> Chronicles is, is a retelling of the whole narrative story, <coughs> focusing on how God is working through the line of Judah. So, the diagram at the bottom of that <coughs> um, simply shows, <coughs> I thought I had it in here, but I don't see it. Yeah, it's right here. So the diagram at the bottom of that, I, I've jumped ahead of myself a little bit because um, this is part of something I call SPSU. But see how I have these arrows, and I have from Genesis to Deuteronomy, and they're all connected. Okay, it's it's one big package. And then even within each one, this is where the and comes back in. Okay, Exodus has an and, so it's connected to, to Genesis and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, etc. So they're all connected together. But it goes one step further. If you look at the very bottom of that, and this is on the bottom of your, your notes there, in Genesis 1-2, it says, When the earth was wild and waste, and darkness over the face of the ocean, the rushing spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. In Exodus 19-4, it says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now, what I want you to focus on are the, the underlined, bold, and italicized words. Deuteronomy 32, 10, 11 says, <clears throat> Yahweh found Jacob in the wilderness land and awake in a howling desert, like an eagle protecting its nest over its young birds hovering. He spread out his wings. He took them, bearing him on his pinions. Last word is almost cut off there, but it's a pinion, just claws, you know? So, <clears throat> what am I trying to tell you here? Um, before I explain, when, when I started learning stuff like this and seeing this in the scriptures, it just opened the scriptures up in a whole new way. It was no longer what I call smorgasbord or buffet Christianity for me. Because that's what I think we have. Lots of people have been Christians for a long time, and they have heard tons and tons of sermons and Bible teaching. But it's smorgasbord, and it's buffet style. There's no connection. And so they just see all these pieces. But it's not like that. It's all connected together. And so what you have here... <coughs> Is again, this, there's no accidents here, okay? I, this is the SPSU principle. I'll explain that in just a second, but Moses wrote all this. He's using connecting words and phrases in Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy, okay, to, to demonstrate how God is working through this whole time period and whole plan together. And so he's talking about the, the, the earth being wild and waste or formless and void, okay, <coughs> in Genesis. And how he creates out of that, right? But he brings it up in Deuteronomy 32. Okay, that's how Jacob was. Okay, until God did what? Took Jacob and made something out of him. Okay, that's what the the world was until God took it and made something out of it, right? <coughs> what did I do in Egypt? How I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to me. Okay, this is God's love. Okay, this is his chesed. It's a Hebrew word for his covenant faithfulness, his love. Okay. Then, again in Deuteronomy, he says it again, like an eagle protecting its nest over its young birds hovering, which that should bring to mind Jesus talking about similarly when he looks at the people and he weeps over them because they're like uh, sheep without a shepherd. 
and, and he used the imagery of, of, uh, of a mother hen wanting to uh, spread her wings and protect uh, her baby chicks. This is coming all the way back from Old Testament. <coughs> she spreads his wings. He took him, bearing him on his, his pinions. And so these phrases, which you don't always pick up in your English, okay? <coughs> so because it just depends on how the translator translated it in whatever translation you're using. The whole point here is how it's connected. There's a, there's an aspect where the Torah story, which is why he calls it the Torah story, <coughs> is all connected, and there's this interrelated aspect to it. So, um, this is this is what I call SPSU. Okay. So, what is SPSU? SPSU is about the cohesion, okay, that's your fill in the blank. The cohesion of the canon is demonstrated both in the content and the organization of the canon. So this SPSU principle, okay, um, I didn't just come up with it myself. I mean, the SPSU is mine, but I was first exposed to part of this idea through um, Dr. John Salhammer's book, The Pentateuch as Narrative, okay? It's a highly recommended book this time of year. It's an old book, but it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, in the book, he demonstrates these connections all through the scripture. Okay? Well, at least the first five chapters. Anyway. Um, that's what got me started on this. Other books pushed and confirmed the idea until it became what it is now. And I, I consider it to be a hermeneutical uh, piece. Um, when I have questions with text, this is what's in my mind. And so in letter A, all right, what does this stand for, okay? What it stands for is selectivity implies purpose. So selectivity is your first blank. Roman numeral 5, letter A, page 8. Selectivity implies purpose, which assumes structure, which demands unity. So selectivity, purpose, structure, and unity. I generally illustrate this uh, like I did with my other class that I, I didn't get a chance to teach. Uh, it's been quite interesting. So uh, everybody knows I'm in a chair, right? So uh, this chair is made of some fashion somewhere. And uh, whether it was a machine or a person or, or whatever, um, they picked out some parts. So imagine you're at this factory. They don't just make chairs. They make chairs and tables and stools and mattresses and everything, right? In order to make that chair, though, somebody out these particular parts, right? There's other parts in the room, in the warehouse, etc., right? So they pick those parts. And why did they pick those parts? Because they plan on making that chair. And that's what they're doing with that chair, right? So selectivity, they selected the parts, right? Purpose, the purpose is they're going to make a chair. Selectivity implies purpose. Purpose assumes structure. Okay, well once they get those pieces, okay, all these different pieces, um, they don't Selectivity, purpose, structure. Okay, it's structure. Let's put together and fit in there. And then the last one is unity. Okay? When those pieces, the 
more perfect. I put together in a certain way, it forms a cohesive whole or take one of the legs off and you're just here. So it works, right? So if you change it, it becomes something else. So STFC, if you need, because there is a small SC, if you have a change in a proton, with a purpose in mind, and they're put together in a certain way, and together that is a unified whole. Okay? Now that works with objects like tables and chairs and, and speakers and, and whatever else, but it also goes with literature. So when you think of the Bible, <coughs> which, by the way, they might never call it the SCFE principle, okay, is what, whatever I call it, but um, Darushi and Adam House and those other guys, when they're talking about how God put together the canon and why it is the way it is, they're basically saying it's the same thing. It's the same idea here. So when you're reading the scriptures and you're wondering, why is this in there? Is this in there? Or why in Genesis doesn't God give us some of the answers that we want about creation? Maybe we're asking more questions. Because God chose what he revealed to us for a particular reason. Like he has a reason for it. So the the storyline, for instance, of scripture, uh, especially in the in the in the genealogy, um, is basically male-centric, right? Okay, well, why is that? Is it because women are unimportant to God? Well, no, and we can go to other scriptures to prove that they're not unimportant to God, right? So, why is it? It has to do with the purpose. It has to do with what he's trying to accomplish. It was put together in a certain way for what his point and purpose is, and, and that's why it's structured that way. So, that's, that's what STFC is. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. I think that uh, we're going to take a break right here. Okay, so what I'd like to pick up on now is another one of uh, the concepts or ideas that I think is uh, crucially important as we study scripture. So uh, the first one that, that I came up with was the STFC one. Um, the second one is a shared pool of knowledge. And those of you that were in the, the Old Testament backgrounds class with me, you've already heard this part, so just bear with me. I'm just going to briefly um, go through it. But this coincides with um, the idea of understanding and trying to figure out what in the world is going on. So shared pool of knowledge simply refers to uh, the information that is shared in, in our situation by both the, the biblical time period and the modern time period. And so it, it's kind of like this. When Moses 
Technically speaking, Moses has some things in mind. And Moses is thinking a certain way. And when you and I are talking or thinking, we're thinking in a certain way. And it's not the same for you. Because we have sovereignty that's where it is. And so we live differently, we think differently, etc. So what that means is that when you read what Moses wrote through inspiration of God, you don't come away with it the same thing necessarily that Moses wanted you to come away with it from. Alright? And so... What this is, then, is we have a lack of shared pool of knowledge. So if you look at the diagram, for instance, the shared pool of knowledge is actually small on this diagram. So there's a large lack of shared pool of knowledge. <coughs> That's one of the reasons that you take classes like Old Testament backgrounds and New Testament backgrounds. That's one of the reasons that you study culture, so that you can try to get into the head of Moses, for instance, so that you can try to understand what he actually was thinking or meant when he wrote what he wrote. Does that make sense to you all? Okay, so this is going to be a constant um, thing that we have to grapple with, whether we're looking at Job or the Psalms or the Proverbs, it doesn't matter. The, the point is that they're going to be speaking a certain way coming out of their cultural context. It didn't happen in a vacuum. And your cultural context is so different. 2,000 years for the New Testament four or five thousand or more years for Old Testament stuff, we're talking like we're worlds apart. And so we have to try to get back into that. That's what shared pool knowledge is all about. And the lack of it is what we have to try to overcome as we study the scriptures together. So with SPSU, with the shared pool of knowledge, and with the chart that you looked at regarding the uh, cohesion of the Torah and even the fuller canon of scripture, the whole Bible, all as one story, God's story, um, these ideas <coughs> should help us reframe how we think about the Bible and should give us a little bit of an impetus for some of the work that we need to do if we really want to understand what God meant when he revealed himself through the scriptures. <coughs> so let's pick up with contents of the canon, uh, Roman numeral number 6. So, the contents of the canon. Um, the contents were preserved providentially by God through particular people and processes. You can cross off the to-do list, okay? So, people and processes. I don't know if you're familiar with Randy Crazy and Zondervan's uh, The Story Curriculum or not, but they talk about the upper and lower story, okay? And what they mean by that is uh, what God is doing and then what the people are doing. And the idea is that God has a story that's unfolding in scripture, and that everybody that's born is a part of that story. That you're either uh, a positive or a negative influence or, or positive or negative character in that story. And those come together. The greatest way that we can see where they come together is when Jesus comes from heaven, the upper story, to earth, the lower story, and bridges those together. And so every time you see God meeting with people, since God isn't literally like, you know, set up shop living on earth, right? So when God's meeting with people, that's heaven and earth coming together. That's upper and lower story coming together. And our goal as, uh, as Christians is that we would be in line with God's story. And so that's what we're doing. When we're studying OT survey, we're looking at what in the world is God doing? And am I on board with this or not? I think last week we talked about um, instead of trying to figure out what you want to do and ask God to bless it or come up with some plan or say, God, please bless this, which is what we do all the time. He says, um, pray and look around and see what God is doing and get on board with what he's doing. Now, that can 
also be a little bit subjective, I realize. But the point is, God's already active. When we started Kirkland Community Church, um, I mean, we prayer walked in and out of every single apartment complex on Kirkland Road that we could get into. And part of our prayer was, like, God, you're already doing something. Like, you already have Christians in every single one of these apartment complexes. Like, raise them up. Join them with us. Like, I mean, that didn't get answered because they didn't join with us. But um, he was already doing something there. It wasn't us coming in to save the day. We just wanted to join what he was doing and help expand that. And so that's the challenge for us. So with that being said, <coughs> what is it um, as far as the contents of Scripture? Number one, the people. Okay, so the people. They're scribes. Okay, scribes, they write stuff. Literally, the word is sofer, anyone who writes. So normally describes those who um, copied sacred scripture, but prior to the exile, they probably worked in the royal court. Um, letter F, they're tasked with the perfectly copying the sacred scriptures. Perfectly. No errors. Because it's whose word? It's God's word. And although you and I, I, I don't want to judge your heart or judge you or anything, but you and I in our culture, generally speaking, we, we actually lack reverence and respect for God's word. Um, especially as compared to the Hebrew people. They, they revered it much, much more than we do. Even in other uh, faiths, um, people that follow Islam, for instance, will, will often look at Christians. And just by the way we treat our Bibles, if we were to put it on the floor or under something or whatever else, they look at that and they say, you have no respect for God's word. Now, we can disagree about what, whether it's respectful or not. I'm just saying that from another perspective, another worldview, they're looking at that and saying, no, you don't. And so and I think it's always, we can always evaluate ourselves and see where we can be more reverential and, and, and respectful, especially when it comes to God. So the people is the first one. The second one is the process. And I'm, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. Um, some of the stuff on your page I, I might let you just read, but the process. Um, letter A is oral. Jeremiah 36, 2 says, Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and the nations from the time I first spoke to you during Josiah's reign until today. So God speaks. Okay, God speaks to his people. God spoke to the prophet. The prophet is simply a, a uh, spokesperson for God. That's what they are. God gives them a word. They speak it. Okay? Revelation 1.19. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. Okay? So God is showing John what's going to happen, and he is uh, to write it down. The written aspect, okay? So there's the oral, but there's then the written, um, which 119 talks about it also. Write this down. And the scribes, which are listed under the people, they were instrumental in recording and copying and preserving God's scripture. Yes, God preserves providentially because he's God. He makes sure what he wants to happen happens. But how did he do it? God's going to save, okay? People are going to get saved. But how does he save? We people. How can they hear unless someone goes and does what? Preaches the gospel to them. Hence, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel, right? Romans, which actually is a quote from Isaiah. So, God uses the people. The uh, synagogue scrolls were regarded as sacred copies of the Old Testament text, and they were used in public meetings. They had separate scrolls or rolls for the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, which we already talked about. Also, they had these Five scrolls that we talked about that were used for the, the different feasts, those were also uh, different scrolls. And they had very strict rules for how to copy these. I have some of those rules um, listed for you on the next page. You can read through those um, in their entirety on your own.
you just highlight a couple of things. Um, whatever they're going to use had to be properly prepared and clean and ready. Okay, so you can't just use some dirty old piece of paper hanging around, right? On top of that, the, the person, okay, the scribe doing the copying had to be prepared. If you look down, you'll see like um, number seven to eight had to be a certain type of ink. Um, you have to use a, a real copy, a, a original number eight, okay? Um, number nine, no word or letter, not even a yod, must be written from memory, okay? That's like the small jot and tittle, the O, the O is like this, okay? you look at this for instance this is um, this is believe it or not okay pretend this column's not here yet okay um, with what language do you think that might be to look at what God's doing and we need to also uh, be wise about what we do. So there should be a response from what we 
okay? So we're talking about scribes, we're talking about copying the scriptures, we're talking about translation. Um, the amount of scripture known to be available for languages in active use worldwide. 636 languages have the whole Bible. 1,442 languages <coughs> have the New Testament. 1,145 have sections and stories. 3,874 languages, no known scriptures. That's a lot of people with no scripture. No scripture means no revelation of Jesus Christ. No revelation of Jesus Christ means This is this is a big deal. So it's something that we want to um, encourage you to <clears throat> be part of. Do you know that Wycliffe, the chapter from Wycliffe, do you know that Wycliffe is here in Orlando? A lot of people don't even realize that. But, I mean, they translate all over the world. They're here in Orlando. <clears throat> this is uh, the same thing, but um, just with uh, a, a different uh, a visual. People with the scripture, <clears throat> that many. And without the scriptures, uh, no scriptures. So you can look at languages, but then you can also look at people. So the, the, there is, if you look at the, the number of people, so we're talking population, okay? And because of how things have worked out, there's a large part of the world that can speak English, okay? Um, and then you've got large areas, you know, India and China, where we have translations available. But there's also many different dialects within that. So that's, that's the, the work of translation. So as, as we're talking about the work of translation and the importance of it, um, I want to challenge you to do something about it also. Um, five bucks in the Mars Club. Five bucks will help get a few phrases translated. You know? And eventually that will be a Bible for somebody, right? So <coughs> I want to talk about translation versus transliteration for just a second. So this is number four. Okay, translation and transliteration. There is a difference, and I need you to be aware of it. Okay, so this is a Hebrew word right here, okay? It means the word, it means debar, okay? And it's a little bit blurry, but that's uh, D-B-R, okay? Hebrew is read uh, right to left, so it's D-B-R, debar, okay? Now, when we say it in English, we reverse it, right? So this is D-B-R, right to left, but we read and write left to right, so we're going to reverse it to D-B-R, and then you got to stick the vowels in there, okay? Originally, the Hebrew has no vowels, so if you think reading the Old Testament is hard, imagine <coughs> it's only Hebrew and there's no vowels. So, um, when, I, when I taught high school, I was giving these examples, and I was just like giving a piece of paper that had a whole string of, it had their words, I took all the vowels out, and you just ran them all together next to each other, figure out what it said. So, it could be a little difficult, right? And sometimes you could you could take this letter, and does it go with this one, or does it go with this one? You know what I'm saying? Because you can make a word either way. So, this is where, go back to the oral aspect. You have oral and you have written ways that it was translated, right? Or passed down. This is where, in their culture, a very oral culture, and the mistake is often made of comparing it to the telephone game, you know? I tell you something, and you tell him, and by the time we get back there, it's something different, right? And they say, see? So, that's why you can't trust the Bible. It's an oral culture. Okay, they just made a huge error. They violated or they perfectly demonstrated the lack of spiritual knowledge. See, there's, you're taking a 21st century thinking about oral transmission and you're putting it back into a thousands of years ago culture of oral transmission. That's not how oral transmission works in the 
all transmission in an hour pulsar works like this. I tell you the story, and you tell him the story. And if you mess up, I slap you side the head. And I make you retell the story until you tell it right. Are you with me? There's checks and balances in this. It's not, it's not just this willy-nilly telephone game. No, Grandpa or Dad is there, which this brings us to passages of Scripture like Deuteronomy 6, where the dad is exhorted to teach your child from the time he gets up to the time he goes to bed. Whether you're walking or talking or eating or no matter, no matter what you're doing, that you are instilling in your kid the wisdom of God and the fear of the Lord, and you're teaching them, this is discipling, right? You're teaching them all day long about every aspect of life. So, that's an oral culture, right, from my understanding. So, it's not just letting all these errors creep in. That's, that's not what happened. That's a, it's a misnomer and a misapplication of our understanding. So, this is Dabar, and it means the word. So, if I want to translate this from Hebrew to English, I don't put Dabar. What do I put? Word. Because it means word. Okay? So, if I say... The, the word of the Lord, you know, Dabar Yahweh, right? No, I, I put the word of the Lord, right? Let me contrast it. This is not a translation. This is Greek, not Hebrew, so I, I changed languages for my illustration. But, same point. <coughs> well, let me just back up. This is a transliteration, not a translation. The translation is word, right? The transliteration is saying in English what the word is in Hebrew. It's dabar. Does that make sense? Okay, so let me use a Greek one. This word you, you know. It's baptizo. Okay, this is B-A-P-T-I-Z-O. Baptizo in Greek. That shows up in your Bible as the word baptize. Baptize is not a translation. It's a transliteration. They never translated the word. Now, you can get into why or why not. Some people think because of uh, you know the ancient church, they sprinkled, baptized kind of means immersed or joined with, etc. But whatever the reason is, my po- I have one point with this. Okay, My point is, it's a transliteration, it's not a translation. So, <coughs> there's, there's more than one occurrence, it's not just the word baptized. Sometimes in Hebrew, for instance, if they don't know what the word means, their only option is to do what? To transliterate it, right? To say, basically, you didn't know it, but you're speaking Hebrew. Right? No one ever said, hey, I'm going to teach you a Hebrew word today. But they did. They put the Hebrew word in there so that you could pronounce it. So, um, I, didn't give, I didn't bring an example of that this morning. But there's hundreds of examples of, of Old Testament words that occur only one time. So, if you have 500 words in the Old Testament and they only occur one time, how do you figure out what they mean? Some of them don't occur anywhere else. We've never found them in any other scrap of evidence. Anywhere. So, you try your best to figure it out from the context, but it's a best guess. Alright? So, that's translation and transliteration. Does that make sense? Any questions? Okay, awesome. Alright, we're going to move on. We're actually going to start. That was all introductory matter. We're going to jump into uh, poetry and the poets now. And so, uh, with that, flip over to the next page of your notes, and we'll see how far that we get with this. The poets, they 
consist of five books. Okay, how many? Five, right? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. They contain the heartfelt emotions and struggles, emotions and struggles, of God's people living the gamut of life experienced in the history. Poetry is ill to the emotions, and it's not so focused on teaching doctrine. Like music, it, it grips the heart and soul. It grips the emotions. It pulls you in. So if you ever read the Psalms, they're very emotional. Okay? They're, it's a worship book, but it's also very emotional. Um, some of the Psalms are disturbing. Like when the psalmist sings, prays, says, bash their heads against the rock. It's like, what? How is that possible? So remind me if I don't bring it up when we get to the Psalms. We'll talk about that. Okay? That's called an imprecatory Psalm. So, <clears throat> what's that? Um, emotions and struggles. The heartfelt emotions and struggles of God's people. So, letter C, the characteristics of Hebrew poetry. The first one is figurative language. Figurative language. Now, this is going to be crucial. This is one of those things that <coughs> um, if you don't grasp this, you're totally going to make God say such and never say. And we don't want to do that. Um, Victor Matthews, in his book, which is on the screen, Old Testament Text and Context, says, The most crucial question about ancient literature, including the Bible, is not whether it should be interpreted literally or figuratively. How many of you have ever had a discussion with somebody about, do you interpret literally or figuratively? Okay, I've had it so many times I can't count, right? He says, that's not the question. The question is how one interprets figuratively, figuratively and literally. What does he mean by that? Why is he saying how and not whether you do it? His point is this. Everybody interprets, both figuratively and literally. There is nobody who interprets every single word of Scripture 100% literally. Nobody does that. And there's also nobody that interprets every single word figuratively. By figuratively, I mean if it says paint the walls, okay, then they're painting the walls, and I don't mean something different. Or to give a, a better example, if I say kick the can, that's a, a figurative expression. saying is, you and I have to wrestle with, <coughs> when do we say it's figurative, and when do we say it's not figurative? Now, when we're talking about the poets, these five books, they are filled with figurative language. Just think of even music in our own culture. <coughs> music is very what? Poetic, flowery, metaphorical, right? Um, think of uh, the rap genre, right? Isn't, isn't the majority of it something else, and uh, plays on words and puns, and, and if you don't know what that thing is that they're twisting to mean something else, then you can't understand what they're talking about. So if, if you don't know culture, so if, if you don't know much about modern culture, there's a whole lot of even like modern music, and I'm just using rap as an example because I think it, it fits the context of what I'm saying, then 
And this always makes me feel like a cent, and you don't have any idea. So that's what he's talking about. Number two. Number two is going to be your gold standard, gold nugget, for how you begin to interpret. When I first learned these things, it will totally change what you think when you read scripture. Number two is called parallel thoughts. Parallel thoughts. The dominant mode of poetic expression um, in Hebrew literature, not in, in Hebrew literature, is parallel thought structures in contrast to what you would normally think of in poetry as rhyme, rhythm, and rap, etc. So, here's the deal. This is, really, this is one of the biggest takeaways you need to get on reading the Bible, particularly the Hebrew Bible, but also the New Testament, but especially, and, and I say that because even though the New Testament was written in Greek, who were most of the people that wrote it? What's that? They were Jews. They were Hebrews, right? And so their thinking is, is still steeped in, in this culture that we're talking about. So they think in parallel thoughts. It's not about rhyming and rapping, okay? Or even rhythm, although some would argue it's, it is heavily rhythm-based. It's about parallel thought, how they think. So let me explain a little more. Letter A. The first one is uh, synonymous parallelism, okay? So... Um, and that one is antithetic, so that's not the one we want. That's, um, well, it's on the screen, so let's just jump to it. That's letter B, okay? Let's do B first, all right? I'll try not to confuse you, but they're out of order on here. Letter B, antithetic parallelism, okay? Anti means what? Opposite. So, antithetic parallelism. The thought in the second line is reversed from the first line, okay? So... Basically, I want you to think about it. Now, it doesn't always have to be as simple as I'm going to say right now, okay? But I want us to understand and get on the same page. So, basically, think of two lines, okay? Line one and line two of, of poetry is what we're saying, okay? And the second line is going to be the opposite, okay, of the first line. Now, this happens all through the Bible. In the book of Proverbs, it happens especially from chapter uh, 10 and following, um, but I'm going to try to give you a couple of examples. You have a whole bunch on your paper. I just want to read a couple so you can see them. So I'm going to go to uh, Psalm chapter 1, uh, verse number 6. So this is in the Psalm, and this is an example. And you'll be able to probably tell with this one, there's a, a pretty big red flag, in my opinion. Now, the red flag doesn't have to be there, but it's here. Psalm 1, verse 6. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. First, first half says what? God watches the way of the righteous, right? The second half says what happens to the, the wicked. The way of the wicked leads to ruin. So the reason it leads to ruin is because, what, they don't follow God, and God is not watching them in, in the text, right? What's the red flag word? But. Okay, so but is a contrast word, right? So, antithetic is opposite. So, look for the word but. No, just because just it doesn't have the word but, that doesn't mean it's not antithetic. Does that make sense? Alright, so, this is the most common. So, like I said, in, um, so this is Proverbs that it's talking about, chapters 10 to 15. About 90% are this type. So, it emphasizes the importance of choosing correctly to avoid the fate of the fool. Synonymous peril 
this is letter A, okay? Make sure you put them in the right order or you'll have the wrong example. Um, the thought is repeated in the second line. The same thought, okay? So he says, you are awesome, you are great. That's the Nile Trailism. I use two different words, right? Awesome and great, but what am I saying in both times? Yeah, exactly. Thumbs up, right? So you just added another one, right? <laughs> so it's the same thing. I'm saying the same thing. Second line repeats the idea of the first line in a slightly different manner. So let's look at these examples. A generous man will prosper. Okay? He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. They're both saying positive results, positive outcome for this man who's following after God or woman. Kings take pleasure in honest lips. They value a man who speaks the truth. So honest lips is the same as speaking the truth. All right? And taking pleasure is the same as valuing. All right. Now, are those words literally exactly the same? No, they're not. They don't have to be. It's parallel thought. Okay? Um, if you analyze the recording of me, uh, I say things more than one way, more than one time. Not necessarily because I'm doing it on purpose, but we all do this, right? Because otherwise our language would be extremely boring and repetitive, right? So we all do this. And in this type of literature especially, um, it is more purposefully done for the same reasons that in rap or, or music there you, you have seen. <coughs> pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So pride is synonymous with a haughty spirit, and destruction is synonymous with a fall. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's synonymous, and that is synthetic. <coughs> Or antithetic. Here's another example from antithetic. A kind man benefits himself, but there's your red flag word. A cruel man brings trouble on himself. So benefits and trouble are opposites. Kind man and cruel man are opposites. So that's antithetic. They're saying opposites. So again, from the, the first slide that we had with this series on parallelism, the, the push for you is to be a wise man that follows after God. Okay. The uh, third one, so number C, letter C, is synthetic parallelism. That's this one right here. This is where the second line extends or expands the first line. Okay, so they're going to add something to it. Now, this is one that gets tricky with synonymous. In synonymous, the second line says the same thing. In synthetic, the second line adds information. Sometimes it can be hard to tell which is which. Okay? So, he who conceals his hatred as lying lives. Whoever spreads slander is a fool. Now, here, they're exhorting you, obviously, to, to speak well. So, you conceal your hatred. You act like you like them. Well, you're really lying. Whoever spreads slander is a fool. So they're not synonymous. They're not saying the same thing. They're adding information about this unwise person. Remember the Proverbs, I shouldn't say remember, we haven't done it yet, but the Proverbs are, are life lessons on how to be wise and follow after God. All right? A comparative is not on your sheet, so don't write that down. This under letter E, it says additional types of parallelism. Um, and you can put the word comparative, the 
start today. So it's the third additional one for Wisconsin. So you can put um, a note if you want, uh, Proverbs 25, 25. Like cold water to a weary soul is good news to the distant land. There's a comparison going on. Um, there are lots of these. What I want you to know are basically four or five. The synonymous, the antithetic, the synthetic, and then <coughs> I think I have an example, hopefully, of uh, the chiastic. The chiastic is um, a bit different. But before we get to that one, <coughs> let's just look at a couple more. Okay, antithetic, Proverbs 10.1. A wise son makes a glad father. A foolish son is grieved to his mother. Two was left off on this to make the point. So wise and foolish, um, glad and grieved father and mother. Okay, Now father and mother both stand for parents. Okay, So that doesn't have to be the opposite part. The, the opposite part is um, the response. Okay, The wise and the foolish uh, are the opposite. A gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. Opposites, okay? Gentle and harsh, etc. <coughs> hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Slow to anger, opposite of hot-tempered, pacifies. There's another one in Proverbs 14.31. And in Proverbs 10.5. And 28.27. So you can probably see the same thing. I have a whole list of them on your, on your sheet also. I, I just wanted to be able to here. All right. So the letter D one is chiasm. Okay. C H I A S M. C H I A S M. All right. This is where the thoughts are repeated, but in a reverse order. It's like a sandwich. Okay. And I'm not going to look at one uh, today for the sake of time, but what they look like, if you line up the, the phrases, okay, they look like what I'm going to put on the board right here. This is a simple one. <coughs> when we get into uh, Job, hopefully uh, today or next class, I will show you some examples of this from Job. Okay? This is A, B, C, D, A. This is, it's a sandwich in a sense because you're, you're stacking things that are symmetrically parallel, okay? So A and A prime are going to be saying basically the same thing, right? Thought-wise, thought they're connected somehow, all right? B and B prime, same thing, and then C stands off by itself, okay? Now, whatever is here may be the main point, but it may not be the main point, okay? It is connected to all of this, all right? But the whole point is it's a chiastic why, why do they use this, this stuff? Um, some people thought, oh, Kevin, this is just made up stuff. You're just doing stuff where you want it to stuff. Until they did a lot of searching and research and looking at all sorts of literature, ancient Near East literature, etc., Old Testament background stuff, you know? And, you know, it was actually everywhere. Because what do they not have back then that we have today? See, if you want to emphasize something, what do you do? point, bold it, italicize it, underline it, right? They don't have that, right? They don't have computers, right? So they're not writing all this stuff down because a lot of people didn't write. Clay tablets and styluses are kind of pricey, you know? They can't run to Walmart and get them packed. Um, so they got to remember it's an oral culture. So how do you do that? The same reason that, you know, 
some creatures do alliteration. Why are they doing alliteration? They want you to remember it, right? So, for the whole Old Testament trick, 3 and 9, right, that's what this is all about. How can you remember it so you can move it up? Um, underneath letter E, there's one more. Acrostics. Okay? Acrostics are uh, some of the Psalms, especially. It doesn't have to only be Psalms, but there's several examples in the Psalms. And you already know what they are if you've um, thumbed through some of the Psalms, because they're the ones where you saw these strange-looking characters, which are actually Hebrew letters, and it follows the Hebrew alphabet. So the Hebrew alphabet is used, so the Aleph, which is A, okay, is listed, and then the next lines all start with the letter A in Hebrew. And then Beit, that's the second letter, but B, right? And the next lines follow that. And so if you were to look at some of the psalms that I have uh, listed here, Psalm 119 is one of the most famous ones. It's a very long psalm, and if you look at it, I would pretty much guarantee almost every one of your Bibles would have it laid out um, as the acrostic, and they would have the Hebrew letters. So if you ever wanted to learn the Hebrew letters, well, you can learn it right there, right? So there you go. You might not be able to see it in the back, but you just flip open to it, and here's, here's your Hebrew letters, okay? It follows the Hebrew alphabet, which is acrostics. All right. So poetry, number three, is, is not limited just to the, the poetry books, okay? Number two, Roman numerals. Wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is technically distinct, okay, from poetic literature. Though all books may be said to contain wisdom from God, that's all they're inspired, right? Um, there's three books in particular that are classified as wisdom literature, and this is what you want to remember. These three books. They are unique, Bruce Waltz, he says, in his Old Testament theology book. They're unique in their vocabulary, their style, their subjects, and their inspiration. Okay? So if you look at the words they use and how they use them, that's what puts them in the category of wisdom literature. Even though, for the frog class, Understand, we're grouping them all under the poets, right? But there's three of those that are actually classified as wisdom literature. And their goal is to teach you in the ways of God. It's their, their instructional manual to some degree, okay? Um, so what are the three? Number one, Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. So of our five that leaves out, which two? Proverbs is our number two, right? Job, uh, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Is that what I said, or did I say it wrong? Okay, so, so Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes are your three wisdom books. So that leaves out Psalms and Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, whichever way you want to say the word. Okay? Number two, both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes were written around the same time period. Okay? Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And who is a heavy hitter as far as authors go in that? So Proverbs and Ecclesiastes were written around the same time period. These books, number three, desire to instill wisdom rather than simply record or narrate events that took place. All right? Letter B. Wisdom literature is not something unique to the Bible. Many examples of wisdom literature are found throughout the ancient Near East. Um, especially in Egypt. 
about wisdom right there. Ancient wisdom was concerned with understanding and preserving order in the world. The manner of viewing the world and life, their worldview in other words, was to fit together all the spheres of life like a big puzzle. Okay? This is coming from um, the Old Testament today by um, Walton and Hill. John Walton and Anthony Hill. This is a classic uh, conservative book to use. Um, so there's four primary spheres of life. And, and what are the, the, spor- the four spheres? Okay, they're right here on the screen for you. They're the, the cosmos and nature. They're family and society. Government and law, ethics and ritual. And right in the middle is what? Okay, God. And here's what you need to grasp from this, okay? This is where our, our dualistic culture that we picked up from um, the Greeks and from others um, needs adjusting. Okay, the Hebrews viewed everything as connected to God because he's creator. Everything was connected to God. So you notice in the puzzle piece, every aspect of life, okay? So there's only how many aspects of life on this diagram? Four. Okay, there's four aspects, and they're all intricately, intricately connected to who? To God. He has something to say about everything. And so, one of the problems we have in our culture is this dualism, okay? And we have these areas that are sacred and these areas that are secular. There is no such thing. God is king over every aspect of society. God is wanting every aspect of your life to be in line with what he's doing for you. There's no area you're going to say, God don't care what I do there. That's not true. God cares about every single area of your life. Okay? And you'll find in the, the biblical wisdom literature, God showing you in every area of that. Letter C, the most prominent theme in the wisdom literature of the ancient Near East. Anytime you see A-N-E, all caps, ancient Near East. Okay? Sometimes you might see it in literature, small a-n-e. Um, still the same thing, ancient Near East. So the most prominent theme is the retribution principle. Okay? Retribution principle. All right, we're going to talk about this all throughout our study of the book of Job. Okay, the retribution principle. Huge. Huge idea. Huge idea. I think this next slide is the one that they're saying is like copyrighted in a moment. Yeah, I think it just. No, it's the next one right after this. So this is just another slide showing how Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and Job all connect to God and, and what aspect they're covering here. All right, we'll, we'll bring this back up um, again at, at a later date. But the retribution principle, okay, is this. So it basically boils down um, to the idea that if you live your life right, God will do what? What do you think, Alati? Bless you, right? And if you don't live your life right, God will curse you, okay? Now, there is some biblical warrant for that, right? Blessings and curses, etc. Okay? The problem is, You like the big uh, proclaim thing on it? <laughs> now, I, I don't understand how it's even copyrighted when I both wrote the slide. <laughs> so, explain that to me. Thanks, proclaim. Anyways, the retribution principle. You reap what you sow, you only reap what you sow. Now, now here's where the problem is, and we'll talk about this in the book of Job, okay? The first part is, is pretty good, right? The problem is the second part. You don't bad happens to you, that doesn't mean it's a judgment from God because you did something wrong. And see, we still deal with this problem to this day. The book of Job is heavy, heavy, heavy on this issue. 
We'll talk about that next class. All of his friends keep saying, Job, you sinned. Just admit it and repent, and God will bless you again. And Job continually says what? I have not sinned. And so that is the idea of the retribution principle. Um, it comes up in the New Testament. Jesus said, you think those guys were um, worse sinners than everybody else when the Tower of Siloam fell on them and killed them all? He said, I tell you, that's not the case. So we see this in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament, we see it in our own lives. We're tempted <coughs> to think that, oh, something bad happened? Well, that's because they're a bad sinner, and we need to do something bad. That's not how it works. When someone dies, it's not necessarily because they just did something bad, because that was the immediate consequence. Don't forget, we all die because we're sinners. We, we get that, right? But are you with me on what I'm saying? All right, so we're going to unpack that with the book of Job as, as we um, walk through that. So it's uh, explained for you under uh, letter C, all right? That's what we just said, the righteous will prosper, the wicked will suffer. That's the tenets of it. Letter D, the wisdom literature of the Bible is unique, okay? It's unique in that it espouses reliance upon God, who is the I am, rather than yourself. This is evidence in such passages as Proverbs 1-7, which says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Okay, so F, small O, G, fear of God, Okay. I'll probably use that a lot. Fear of God, and it's in contrast to S-O-M, fear of man. All right, so we, you and I still, we, we battle this, okay? We're, we're afraid that people aren't going to like us. We're afraid uh, something's not going to go right. We're going to be embarrassed. Fear of man still drives too many areas of our lives. And God is saying, stop. Fear of God. Put me first. Stop worrying about all these people. Stop worrying about those other steps. Uh, what was Saul's deal with why he offered the sacrifice? waiting for the prophet Samuel to show up. The people. Why, why does Aaron make the golden calf? The people, right? Now, they didn't have enough courage in themselves, right, and faithfulness to God, but the influence of the people, right? Fear of man instead of fear of God. The Bible's saying, no, you've got to have the fear of God. Proverbs 1.7. <clears throat> Furthermore, the rest of the Bible demonstrates the utter inability of man to find his way. Thus, biblical wisdom is rooted and grounded in the creator I am, who knows all and is thus capable and willing to provide insight, guidance, instruction, and the proper way to live one's life. So, letter E, wisdom literature in the biblical sense is about acquiring the necessary skills, that's your blank, skills, to navigate through life properly in accordance with God's purpose and plan. These skills are given by God in his good grace, just as he gave um, the two guys, uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, the skills or grace to construct the tabernacle. If you go read Exodus 31.3, same word. Okay? So you, you got practical. It's not just all in your head stuff. It's practical skills too. Um, in fact, Proverbs is big about the practical. Uh, Victor Matthews, in his, his text that we've, we've already referenced, his Old Testament um, text, text and context, indicates that biblical wisdom includes uh, several things. Number one, wise behavior. So what's a wise person? They have, they have wise behavior. No action is taken hastily or without thinking. I'm trying to teach our son this right now. You know, he, he's uh, hyper-reactive, if you will. You know, you get upset about something and you immediately respond, right? And so, you know, he's just like a volcano ready to erupt, right? You need to calm that volcano down, you know, before you spew out all sorts of garbage. <coughs> Number two, wise speech, which is what gets spewed out when the volcano erupts. <laughs> Unwise speech is what that means. No word spoken may injure someone else. This is Ephesians 4.29. My uh, kind of blunt paraphrase is uh, build up or shut up. You know, Ephesians 4.29 says that your words are supposed to do what to people? They're supposed to build them up, right? 
So if your parents ever told you, you know what I mean, the nice to say, don't say anything at all, they might not have known it, but I mean, it's really you being poor young enough. So, and thirdly, a wise person, one who walks in the way or the path of Yahweh, and who recognizes that wisdom may be acquired from persons and even creation of all genders and ages and occupations, etc. I think I am going to do one more uh, section, I think letter G, and then we'll probably call it a day. Uh, the next section kind of goes together. It's a little bit of an extended uh, understanding of our need, like why do we even need wisdom? And then this will take us into the book of Job, okay? And so I'm going to start this. And I'll do letter G, like I said, and then probably H will probably pick up next time. All right? So, <clears throat> wisdom and the, the will of God. Okay, why is it that we even are in this predicament or, or we need wisdom? Why? Because things like that happen. Okay? Well, why are cars in swimming pools? That's not where they belong, right? So, the need for divine guidance. And in this case, your blanks are actually all up on the screen. Okay, the first is the man of Simcha. All right? You all, you all probably uh, know or have heard Romans 3, 1, 3, all things concurrent the word of God, right? So there's several other scriptures listed for you there. But the bottom line is this. We're sinful. So guess what? Sinful means that we go the wrong way, right? Therefore, we need someone to give us divine guidance. We need someone to correct us, okay? Yeah, you can look to somebody else to correct you or to point you in the right direction. People do. It's not going to be sufficient. Sometimes it helps. Sometimes it's godly and actually is is from God. But without, as we'll see in a few minutes, what God has to say, it lacks sufficiency. The second one is man is simple-minded, naive. Okay? We're easily led astray. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. That's awesome. And the next day we're like, what was I thinking? You know? What looks good to us, you know, that's Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Oh, yeah, this looks good. Yeah, take a bite. Oh, this tastes good. Adam, have some, buddy. Oh, what's the next few seconds of your life right? like? Yeah, the biggest mistake of their life, literally, right? So, unfortunately, you can't go back in time and fix that, you know? You can't take back the words that you say. You can forgive, but you can't take back the words that you say to people. You can't take back, you know, the, the actions that have happened. We are uh, simple-minded. We're easily led astray. In the Proverbs, the, the Proverbs talk about different types of people. And one of the types of people that it talks a lot about is the simple. And th that's not a completely negative aspect or characteristic. A simple person, I mean, it's not the optimal, but it's not the worst either. A simple person can be persuaded either way. Majority of people are simple-minded people. That just means that they're open to persuasion one way or the other. You, know, you really only have two other sets. You have the wise person that's fully committed and devoted to God, right? You're not going to persuade them to something else, so they're not simple-minded, right? And then you've got the fool or the mocker. And they're not simple-minded either. They've made up their mind to do what? Not follow God. So they're not wise, and they're not simple-minded because they're not easily persuaded anymore. They're the fools and the mockers. The majority of the people are really in the middle. And I don't want to be super pragmatic.
shining the the spirit aspect from this one after taking it that way. But so Manus clearly solicited the spin. Manus solicited the spin. Uh, what do I mean by that? <coughs> I just mean that your passion of being fitful means that don't blame everything on the devil because everything's not the devil. Uh, you have a heart which is deceitful beyond what you can understand. We give the devil too much credit. But is the devil active also? Yeah, the devil is active also. Because he is doing something. First Peter 5 8 says he's out there like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, right? But you also have a deceitful heart. So sometimes you can trick yourself into thinking you're doing something for God when you're not. Alright? So don't blame it on the devil. But the devil is out there. And so we got to be aware of these things. All of these are three reasons why you need divine power. Why you need the creator who made everything, who knows your heart inside and out, who knows how the whole universe is set up because you made it. You need him to tell you how it needs to be. Your washing machine breaks down. Who's the best person to call? Isn't that an amazing thing, right? He knows how it works. He put it together. He, he made it. So uh, we will pick it up next week with uh, letter H, the nature of divine guidance, and then that's going to move us right into the book of Job, of which we're going to begin to discuss and to dialogue about the, the wisdom that we learn from Job and the retribution principle, or what all that was about, and what the friends are, are going back and forth about. As you read Job, if you get bogged down and confused, <coughs> don't feel too bad. I stay away from Job for years, because when I was in second grade and I got my first Bible, I started reading Job, and I was completely confused. And so I stayed away from it for a very long time, until I was teaching and didn't have a choice because I had a teacher. Um, just plow through it the best you can, all right, and, and learn as best you can. Um, one of the things I want you to just understand, if no one's ever told you this, is um, there's different things that you do with the Bible. You read the Bible, okay? When you read a book, you read it from cover to cover, right? Okay, read the Bible from cover to cover. That's kind of what you're doing in Old Testament survey, right? You're just reading, okay? Uh, there's there's devotional, quiet time type aspects where you're like, it's different than just reading, okay? You're meditating, you're you're looking for God to speak to you, you're going slower, okay? You're, you're maybe drilling down, you know, on a passage or something. That's not exactly the same as just reading through it, okay? When you're just reading through it, you're getting the big picture, you're getting the story, you're getting what's going on in, in God's plan. And then there's Bible study. That's that's different also. Bible study. I mean, you you're tearing stuff apart. And hopefully, you're going to put it back together. But you're you're trying to dig deep on something and trying to figure out how pieces are are uh, plugging in together. Does that make sense? So sometimes I used to when I was younger hear I hear this preacher say just read through the Bible as many times as you can. Just read through it, plow through it. Don't go slow. And I hear some guys say, no, 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 slow down, take your time. Well, what is going on? Yes, they're talking over each other's heads. One's talking about Bible reading. One's talking about doing devotions, and then there's Bible study on top of that. So, for, for this course, what we're talking about, like your homework if you will, is Bible reading. So, from the Bible reading, God will speak to you, okay? But also, you're getting the big picture. Alright? So, we want to read the, read the text so that you understand uh, the story. So, let me pray for you, and we'll be done. Father, we thank you for um, the opportunity to study your word, and I just pray that uh, as we
get off to a good start this semester. I pray that you would help every one of us as we are in your word, Lord, that, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would help us understand um, the, the storyline, your storyline, and what you're doing. I pray that as we're looking at the wisdom literature, that you would help us to keep you first, that we would um, put the fear of God ahead of the fear of man, that we would uh, learn what it means to be men and women that pursue the path of righteousness, that pursue uh, you, God, and that through that, as we change our lives, Lord, we would then be a beacon of light uh, for others to be able to pursue that path of salvation as well. We pray all this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.